Hello and welcome back to the IC Interviews. I'm Mary McDougall and I'm delighted to welcome today's guest Simon Brewer, former Chief Investment Officer of European branch of US investment bank Morgan Stanley. Simon is currently Senior Advisor to Rothschild & Co and host of the Money Maze podcast, where he has interviewed all sorts of interesting business leaders and financiers. Simon, welcome. How does it feel to be on the other side of the interview table? <laughs> well, first of all, thank you. And secondly, may I let you know in about half an hour? <laughs> <laughs> Well, in your podcast, you tend to focus more than we do on the careers of your guests, how they've climbed the ranks, how they think and what advice they have. I highly recommend it. But we chat more specifically about investing markets and economics. So with that in mind, there's a lot going on at the moment. Um, Broad question to start with. What pockets of equity markets do you think represent the best value at the moment? Yes, well, I think there's a danger. You know, our business, the investment business, likes to use acronyms. It likes to use generalizations. People talk about expensive stock markets, but you dive into the detail and the most expensive stock market of the major stock markets of the US. Admittedly, it is over 60% of the world index, but by any measurements of valuation. The US is an expensive stock market. Historically, you can argue that with bond yields where they are, the US stock market doesn't look so expensive. But that begs the question of are yields as reflected in current bond prices the right level? So therefore, be very careful about, you know, making a measurement of, of cheapness or expensiveness on something that is already you know overvalued. So the US may have the growth companies which is why that it has been a destination for capital, um, much more than other markets we might talk about. But there are lots of very interesting opportunities around the world. And I would split that answer into the geographical uh, dispersion, places like the UK that are cheap relative to history, significantly cheap, parts of Asia that are similarly so, by sector dispersion, because we know what's happened to the ratings of technology companies, but the absolute inverse of that is what has been going on in the energy complex. And then we have, you know, as a, as a, as a, as a component of that, the whole growth versus value equation, where growth has outstripped value comprehensively for 20 years. And some of us, like myself, have been allocating, you know, more to value in the expectation that we have a regime shift underway. Yes, there's lots to pick up on there. I think if we start with the US, the stock markets faltered a little in the last couple of weeks with inflation expectations. And I think people are increasingly more worried about tightening of monetary policy or or that that that's more likely to happen soon. And we've seen a little bit of a sell off. What is your thought on what are your thoughts on inflation? Do you think that central banks are right and that it will be transitory or are you worried it might prove longer lasting? Or call me a hoary old cynic, but I think the central banks are engaging in some wishful thinking. I think that this inflation, part of which can be attributed to the unlock and supply interruptions, is going to prove significantly more sticky. It seems to be getting itself embedded into all sorts of areas, including labour. And yet I think the central banks will argue that it is a temporary phenomenon. And that, of course, suits the fact that they are having to deal with a colossal amount of debt, you know, on which these economies and individuals are, you know, are, are sitting. And so any sharp rise in rates is going to have, a, you know, the effect of strangling the economy. But on the other hand, they have to balance what happens if an inflation really gets embedded in the system. We've been there before, you know, on multiple occasions, and that creates, you know, super serious problems for central banks. So I think in answer to your question that it's more serious than they believe. And I think that that 
will affect asset allocations and uh, and has all sorts of investment implications. You mentioned the growth value split in your previous answer. Do you think in the context of inflation, um, investors might be better off in value stocks or... Well, look, I think that there's always a danger that, you know, one looks at these things in sort of binary terms and it's much more shades of grey in investing. If you look at the UK market, which is very cheap historically, uh, Morgan Stanley had produced some work a few few months ago, which factually uh, draws attention to the, to, to the fact that it is, I think, on a 25-year relative low and maybe a 30-year absolute valuation low. And there are lots of reasons for why the UK is out of favour, started with Brexit, not helped by COVID, and because of the composition of the index with sort of all sorts of companies in there that some would say aren't attractive and don't represent sort of, you know, the future. But of course, you know, what price do you want to pay for growth? You know, the great technology companies of the US, the Googles and the Amazons and Apples, well, we all know about their extraordinary success. We all use their products a lot. But, you know, we have also a situation where their tax rates are significantly below the average corporate tax rate, you know, particularly in the US, which I think might be around 22%. Um, they have uh, engaged in you know, very successful executions, but they have monopoly positions. And in the same way that the Chinese have responded to, to the growing uh, influence and control of their tech companies, so there's increasing debate in the US. So I think you have to argue that you know, with rates potentially rising in an inflationary environment, uh, are those companies going to be where you source compelling returns going forward and and, you know i think there's better value elsewhere both geographically and from a sector standpoint have you been increasing your value to the uk recently your allocations uk Yes. Well, I mean, I have, and I was certainly have been too soon in, you know, in doing that. Um, but uh, a, com- a number of reasons sterling got very cheap, and I don't see the bearish case for sterling being as strong as some have, uh, you know, some have argued. And I think the UK represents, well, it factually represents, you know, some, some very interesting value. And you can look, uh, you know, the dividend yield of the market, uh, you know, in a world where there is zero, um, you know, zero on cash, and in fact, negative real. Um, and not just the UK. Um, other parts which we might come to in a minute of you know of, of Asia, but yes, I have increased my allocation to the UK, and I've done it through a mixture of passive and active decisions of certain areas that I want to be more exposed to. I guess something that everyone in in the UK and beyond is feeling at the moment is the energy crisis. Gas prices have quadrupled since February. Inventories at European storage facilities are at historically low levels for this time of year. Pipeline flows from Russia and Norway have been limited. Um, how do you think investors should be thinking about this? What what are the risks it might pose to stocks? And also, are there opportunities? So should people be buying oil companies? Hmm. It's a fascinating question because this whole energy complex has got a political dimension and it's got a valuation dimension. I think if you answer the first part of your question, which is, is this a potential real issue? for lots of parts of the world, but UK and Europe, and we're seeing it in China as well, absolutely. You know, it is a you know it is a been a function of all sorts of you know issues. Part of which has been in pursuing a you know in the UK's case, but in pursue, pursuing a stronger carbon agenda. You know, a lot of decisions have been made that, quite frankly, look a bit curious. From you know running down you know gas reserves and storage capabilities uh, to Europe's reliance on you know Russia's pipelines, and let's face it, you know anything that allows the Russian authorities to uh, you know to be um, how should we say this, but 
but to, to be able to exercise their influence and leverage will be to you know play to, to their advantage and play to the maximum. So these high oil prices, high gas prices, and it's particularly gas, um, I think are a shorter term problem. And I think then one needs to distinguish between can in fact there be a supply response because you know how do you solve higher problems in the energy where you produce more energy? But the problem is that a lot of the major companies have cut back on investment because in this energy transition and because of activism and sort of the you know the, the kind of the the issues around ESG a lot of these oil companies of course are being discouraged from you know further investments now does that create opportunity my argument is it does and I think there are you know there, there's sort of there's the valuation case that here in the UK the shells and the BPs have you know handsome dividend yields um, and strong free cash flows and stock buybacks you know but it's true of the energy complex ap- uh, overall now the, the the ESG argument is clearly that these are the polluters and you know kind of they're the enemy of the investment community and I just think that's that's too straightforward you know if you want to work with the BPs and shells uh, on their journey towards being more environmentally friendly do you want to sell your holdings and have them end up in a passive uh, you know vehicle or do you want to if you're an institutional investor do you want to actually engage with them and I think engagement is absolutely the way forward and I think if you're an individual investor you have to look and you have to say well hang on a second I remember the tobacco stocks it was a reason for disinvesting from from you know from them and they proceeded to have very strong cash flows and business models and very handsome returns to investors. So, you know, I think you have to think about, you know, the investment part, however important it is we make this journey. It's the excel, it's the speed with which certain constituencies think we can shift to, you know, a greener economy um, that I think is causing, you know, part of that problem. Mm, it's very interesting. And I would agree with you that engagement probably over exclusion is a is a better way to help us transform. So just one more question on the UK. The UK is sort of trying to turn itself into more of a tech hub. We've had the Hill Hill Review to relax the listing rules. Um, Oxford Nanopore listed this morning. (laughs) Stock prices surged. Um, But there are more structural problems. Do you think, do you you feel positive about the future for UK growth companies or, or not? I think that I feel quite positive that actually the UK as a destination for capital uh, in terms of its valuation of its market, in terms of its currency, in terms of its ability to, you know, to navigate all these cross currents post Brexit and, you know, you know, actually makes it quite well placed. So, uh, you know, I don't see I, I don't see the reasons to be bearish on the UK quite quite the contrary. In terms of the 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 uh appetite to encourage more tech companies you know i don't really know enough about those companies when you start sort of uh lightening the listing requirements because you want to be seen to be you know a tech hub um you know that does that necessarily attract all the the most interesting companies so i'm a, a little less clear that certainly wouldn't that, that, that wouldn't be the reason for me to want to own uk assets Okay. You mentioned Asia earlier. We're all on tenterhooks watching what will happen with Chinese real estate company Evergrande, which is struggling to service its debt. It sold part of its holding in a bank to a Chinese state-owned enterprise recently. Um, What are your thoughts on the gravity of the situation and its implication for the Chinese economy? Well, I think there's the Evergrande specific situation and there's the Chinese economy and the Chinese 
and Hong Kong equity markets, and and they're related short term, but they're not related long term. I don't think the Chinese will allow Evergrande to create a systemic risk to their financial system. You may see the board of, of Evergrande taken out and not seen again uh, for some time, but I think that uh, they will manage this transition. They can control, you know, they can control it and create, you know, the right vehicles to deal with, you know, the bad assets, etc. Um, I think that raises the question of should one be interested in a part of the world that is you know large and growing but where there is you know you know there are great geopolitical issues whilst there are many stocks on eight percent dividend yields with sound balance sheets and cash flows uh, that might not be in the in the trigger of the Chinese authorities so it's one of those classic dilemmas you have geopolitical risk and that needs to be taken into account. Uh, but you have some terrific valuation. And you know, even Hong Kong, I think I'm right in saying that for the last 40 years or so, Hong Kong companies have had a very similar return on equity to the, to, to the US uh, listed equities in general. And yet their valuation is a fraction of the, the uh, you know, the US's because there's been a quite a considerable amount of discounting going on. Do I think there's value there? Yeah, I do. Am I? Am I? Have been allocating. I'm beginning to allocate a little bit of capital there. Um, but you know, the Asian sort of theatre uh, for for investments, I think, remains you know compelling, and there are lots of you know good companies and, and interesting opportunities. How much do you think might be appropriate for a private investor to have allocated to Asia and within that China? Yes. Well, I think that. If you took the equity piece of an individual's allocation, and let's and, and let's just let's say it's fifty percent, but let's imagine it's one hundred percent. So we gross it up to one hundred percent. What is the allocation that I want to have to Asia, including Hong Kong? It's a, uh, for me, it's around fifteen one five percent, and of that, you know, the China Hong Kong component is you know probably as much as a th- I think I'm building towards a third of that, so five percent. Okay, and how much in the US? Oh well, see, so the US—that's that's interesting. I mean, I have been moving away, you know, from the US for a while. So I think that actually, I probably would uh, would not want to have much more than half of the the US's weight. So the US is sixty percent of the world index right now. I think as a, as an as an individual investor, I would want to have sort of half of that, not 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 more. Finding more value elsewhere. Institutional investor couldn't do that because of all the benchmark risks, you know, uh, you know that are attendant with that. But I think uh, individual investors can take a, you know, can take a much stronger view about how much they want in any given region. I think another area that's very interesting at the moment is private equity. We've been the private equity has been circling around all sorts of companies. Um, what's your view on investing in private equity investment trusts? That being the main way that private investors can get access? Yeah, well, I don't claim to have any sort of great insights, you know, into the world of private equity. I see uh, sort of institutional investors obviously accessing it, you know, directly or through some of the larger funds like KKR and Carlyle. I think that one has to be always be very conscious of the illiquidity that comes with direct private private investing. I think that some of these funds that have been created, and if you think back all the way to you know Electra and Three I, I mean, there've been vehicles that have been around for a long time. I'm just worried a little bit that people. Uh, chasing returns and chasing yield um, and 
and seeing particularly the returns that private equity has generated and maybe allocating to that space from parts of their portfolio that were previously more defensive. Because in a world where bonds yield nothing, you keep on looking around for returns, you go up the risk curve, but you also go the wrong way uh, you know, in, uh, up or down the liquidity curve. So you're taking more risk and you're getting less liquidity. And I think that one needs to be careful, it would be my own sense, because to make to, to, to assess the risk in private equity and to access the best managers, you need scale and size and resources, and it's difficult for individual investors to, to achieve those. Yeah, that's fair. Um, linking back to, we were talking earlier about inflation and different ways that people can protect themselves from inflation. I think one traditionally would be short-dated index-linked government bonds, but they are very expensive. So what's your view on index-linked government bonds specifically and then fixed income more broadly and its place within a portfolio? Well, I mean, we know the traditional portfolio for individuals sort of worked around either 60, 40 equity bonds or some variation thereof. And that was in a world where we used to get a yield, uh, a nominal yield and some inflation protection. And the world's been turned on its head now, courtesy of central banks' policies and zero nominal rates, but actually negative real rates. And cash, therefore, looks deeply unattractive. But, you know, cash does give you flexibility. It does give you some optionality of assets really tumble in price. You have some firepower there. So, uh, you know, whilst I don't like cash, I think it's important. Why would you lend money to a government, almost any G7 government, at these current yields of 1.5% in the UK nominally? And the answer is, I'm not sure why you would. Um, uh, so, uh, so, so I worry that the you know the fixed income universe is a value trap now if it's very short term and i'm sort of talking about sort of up to up to two years and there's a little bit of corporate debt in there fine but your returns are minimal so one has to be very careful about reaching for yield in the world of you know fixed income because high yields spreads and, and yields have absolutely collapsed and 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 there's for my mind there's very little value there so if you're talking about inflation protection which matters for people are up and down every country particularly those seeing you know important amounts of savings under under threat from inflation you know equities can up to a point offer you protection but not all equities and not if inflation becomes really really sticky it depends on how the business is able to manage that inflation can the can the food can the supermarkets pass on that inflation and actually ride out a period of inflation uh, quite well i think quite possibly i think that's quite a defensive you know place to be um but I think that the in, in a world of higher inflation, then you start thinking about your commodity exposure. Well, oil is, of course, you know, dependent on economic activity, and there is there are some specific issues around oil which we've talked about. I like the oil sector, and it's had this massive derating. I think probably from a peak of a quarter of the S and P being an oil company to probably not much more than five percent, um, and, and sort of you know elsewhere that's similarly the case. So yes, equities it, it can can offer you protection, um, and then you start moving into the what are the other things well obviously the real assets so you know people own property and if they have large enough investment portfolios they can own forestry and agricultural land although those are again quite sophisticated you know institutional asset classes when you start talking about it in scale but i think commodities you know are, are quite interesting commodities like um Platinum uh, and silver. I've been uh, I, i've been buying i think look look look, look quite attractive risk reward um we always come back to the the gold question. Um, I am. I have been persuaded for a long time 
that I want to have gold in my portfolio. I think one needs to look back at Gordon Brown's extraordinary decision to sell a lot of the UK's gold at $300 an ounce. It's up sixfold from there. Um, I've owned gold for quite a while. It's been a bit lackluster of late because we're in a period of economic expansion. I think when that expansion starts to slow, I think gold starts to look you know, increasingly attractive. And when people say to me, well, you know, it doesn't have any economic use, that's exactly why you own gold. You don't want to have something that is, requires a robust economy because your gold is there to perform a function when things are significantly less certain and as the old saying goes gold is the only asset that doesn't represent anyone else's liability and all the gold ever mined still fits into two olympic sized swimming pools so i think there are some pretty compelling reasons particularly with gold having had a nice pullback to be adding or putting gold into your portfolio speaking of not having economic use um, what are your thoughts on cryptocurrencies? Well, on the Money Miss podcast, we recently did an interview with uh, um, Nick Carey, who's the founder of blockchain.com, and he made a very articulate case for all of the attributes attached to the cryptocurrencies and their store of value. And I've sort of scratched my head a bit, you know, digital currencies being a store of value, and yet there are 6,000 or more of them. I know Bitcoin only has... 21 million you know bitcoins in use so there is a sort of a uh, you know a, there's a cap on that uh, i think that the underlying technologies around blockchain and around devolved finance are very interesting i haven't been persuaded that i want to have cryptocurrencies in my portfolio um to date i think i think you're right the interesting um, part is their uses and maybe thinking about them in terms of currencies isn't helpful it's more how they might be able to rewire the financial systems but I guess you have um, China banning them to show that, that the governments can can step in to make it very difficult for these decentralised systems to work without government support um, Yes. Another interesting area is the active versus passive debate Um so we'll just start with in terms of exposure, do you favour active funds or passive funds or are there different parts of the markets where you would take one over the other? Well, I sort of was brought up and trained as an active manager. So so I essentially believe that active management has a really important role to play. Um, Finally, if you and I think both know Robin Wigglesworth from the Financial Times, who's just produced this book, I think as of today, called Trillions. Um, and we interviewed him on the Money Miss podcast and he makes a very eloquent case for why passive beats active in developed markets, particularly you know the US in most cases. But he will, he will acknowledge that there are managers who can outperform the index. Now, I guess that my own experience has been that a combination of active and passive you know makes sense so i had passive exposure in the uk as i mentioned i've had passive exposure to korea and taiwan and other indices where i'm sort of going after the the values of valuation opportunity there do i feel that i can you know access the best managers in that area if i can then i might be interested in allocating them if not i might just want to own the index so i think it is a mixture you know of the two the fees obviously in the passive world are are much lower. Um, but if you take the US right now and you say, well, I want to in the US market and I'm going to go passive. Well, it's the, what worries me is, I suppose, the unwind. So, you know, lots of money has flown into those passive vehicles, passive ETFs around, you know, around the index. And, uh, uh, you know, and I think that we'll enter a period at some point where, particularly if we have that 
shift from growth to value where you know there will be you know there'll be an uncom- there'll be some uncomfortable you know air pockets in the market and of course there are some of these passive vehicles that have been created around very specific um and niche opportunities and some of them you know are, are, are very risky but those tend to be the etfs which have got leverage and uh you know but broadly passive has an important role to play yes do you think um do you worry about what the sort of structural implications more broadly you know money just flowing in to passive funds um rather than being selected on merit of the stock price there, there was an article saying that um, by a broker, Stonex, recently saying that um, trillions of dollars that have gone into these passive funds has inflated the stock market valuations. And while the majority of it might be from monetary policy, they, they argued that 27% of cyclically adjusted Schiller P ratios were because of passive money. Um, do you worry that too much passive might affect the health of the stock market? Well, I haven't read the article, but I wonder whether there may be a confusion between cause and effect, because it's the central banks with their policies of zero rates and QE that have encouraged people to take more risk and driven them from cash and bonds into equities. That expression, Tina, there is no alternative. Now, that it's the central bank policies and the world we've, we, we have been inhabiting that have driven people to equities and the vehicles that they have in large chosen are passive because they are cheap accessible. Um, but I point the finger of, uh, you know, and I'm going to use the word blame, you know, at the central banks because there are people who have taken more risk than they would otherwise have, have done, um, had interest rates been kept at, you know, something, you know, more normal. Mm. And um, another area that's attracted a lot of money is ESG funds. And we touched on that. You touched on that earlier. It's it's a very interesting time, I guess, leading into COP26. There's a lot of noise around it. Um, but we've also seen several senior executives whistleblowing recently. You've had Tarek Fancy at BlackRock, um, an executive at DWS. The regulation's only starting to come in to actually measure um ESG credentials. Do you see fund managers at the moment? Do you see ESG as a marketing or a real force for good in how the industry is presenting it currently? Well, I think the financial service industry at large never misses an opportunity to jump on, uh, you know, jump on a moving train that might be accelerating. And it is true that there are lots of offerings out there, many of which I'm not familiar with, but some would appear to blandish their credentials. And I'm not sure how much they bear scrutiny um, in terms of the underlying process. I think that, you know, the drivers are well-founded. You want to invest in companies that are well-governed. You want to invest in companies that are absolutely taking note of their environmental responsibilities and their digital footprint, um, and you want to have good governance. Now, those should be considerations that you apply to companies, you know, even before the advent of ESG. But I do think that the uh, the motivations for having greater attention paid are you know, are really important. 
don't. Now, there are some like Warren Buffett, who, as you will know, are very sceptical of sort of, you know, the, uh, you know, of the, the flavor of this being the flavor of the day and says, you know, it's, it's, it's economic returns that, you know, that really matter. So I think that the, you know, the ESG, um, universe means that, that many of those characteristics will be sought out increasingly in investment process. And I think we'll move on and people won't be talking about it because, you know, it, companies that pollute horribly or, or run, run their companies in a way that's deemed to be, you know, inappropriate will, will be divested from. But then we come, as we touched on earlier on to, for example, the energy complex. And I think it's much more nuanced there about whether you want to abandon your st- shareholding, um, or stay on board and be part of the debate. And obviously, I come down on the side of being involved and engaged. Yeah. On the energy point, I think the drive from ESG is part of the reason why there's been a lot of money flowing into these renewable energy infrastructure trusts. We've had um, lots of launches in, in recent years, and they're trading on very high premiums to their net asset value. Um, part of the attraction, I think, people like them is because there is a degree of inflation protection built in perhaps on our inflation theme what's your view on the investment case for these trusts because they are quite complicated I mean I actually haven't spent much time looking at them I always worry about premiums to NAV because the market has a horrible way of then providing you with an opportunity to sell them at a discount later on. Um, so I don't want to be cynical, but I think one needs to be a little bit careful, uh, you know, here. Um, so I think, you know, more generally, infrastructure, again, it's it's proved to be a very attractive um, asset category, but I think one just needs to, you know, be careful. Airports look like they were very safe places, you know, uh, in terms of, you know, investing money, and it's proved to be, you know, significantly more, you know, rocky of late. So, again, I think that when, you know, when things become too popular, and they look too easy and too fashionable, one just needs to be a little bit, you know, careful. Yeah, well, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for, but I really appreciate having you on. That was really interesting. Thank you. Well, Mary, thank you very much for uh, asking me to join the show today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.